O heavenly King, the comfort of the Spirit of Truth, who art everywhere present and fillest all things, treasure blessings and giver of life, come and abide in us and cleanse us from every impurity and save our souls a good one. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Ready to roll? Go for okay. it. Something funny happened on Facebook uh, two days ago. Um, I taught at Milligan College all through the 90s up in Northeast Tennessee. And back door. <laughs> and um, so one of my former students posted something that said, I had a dream the other night that I had been hit by one of TMAT, it's my, my nickname, TMAT, I'd been hit with one of TMAT's pop quizzes. And, and I wrote and said, is that one of the ones where I would put five worthless pop culture questions on it and then ten questions drawn straight out of the A1 headlines about important stuff in the world and students would get all of the pop culture references and none of the important, like, like who is Tom Cruise currently dating? Everybody would know. What nation is being accused of bribing the President of the United States with campaign funds? You know, like, not nobody. You know, I, and I, that deer in the headlights look. Okay, so your pop test today is after last week. I mean, I would like someone to give me a lengthy explanation of the Fallocque Clause and its importance in the history of orthodoxy. No, just joking. Uh, but you talked about some really interesting stuff last week. I mean, I especially liked ending on the note of uh, why orthodoxy doesn't have a pope even though the New York Times seems to think that we do. Um, that's a blog post. <laughs> yeah, that's, uh, and at the moment, there have been times when people in Istanbul thought we had one too, but we're not going to go into that today. What I've done, the way I teach, is I looked at this chapter, I read back through it again yesterday, and I've taken three big ideas that I'd like to kind of stress out of this. If you have your book with you, you'll find some of the things I'm referencing. I, I work with an iPad here, so that's why I'm, I'm not looking at like football scores or something up here. Let me get my actual text out. It's okay, we won yesterday. Yeah. yeah this, we, would, this would be a fun <laughs> day to be a from fan Louisiana. of the Oklahoma Sooners. SEC, SEC. Uh, okay, so anyway, in the in the chapter, A Sacrifice of Praise, um, to me, for catechumens, one of the big, big ideas in this, in this particular chapter is, what do y'all want anyway? What is it that converts come to the church seeking? And the big word, if you, not to bury the lead, as we would say in journalism, the big word, I think, in this chapter is beauty. And part of it is then, what does the beauty look like in worship? And how do you begin the process of that beauty making its way into your own life and in your own home? And I have a few ideas related to that idea. And I'll come back to the three big, the three big parts of the chapter, in my opinion, in a moment. But I wanted to start with just kind of a personal story. Um, when you write a nationally syndicated column, people send you all kinds of things wanting you to write about it. And in 1996, I was teaching at Milligan College, and a CD arrived, for those of you 
are old enough to remember CDs. And before CDs, there were things called albums, and now the albums are hotter than the CDs, and it's all confusing. Um, but a CD arrived by a band from Ireland called Iona. And this particular rock band, um, Journey Into the Morn was the name of the album. And I took it home and basically, it's like a cross between kind of Gregorian chant and Led Zeppelin. Uh, it was a very interesting, you know, and I was really taken by this. And I started, I wrote back to the company and said, I'm actually interested in this band. I don't know how I would end up interviewing them somebody or something, but they went, we'll take care of it. We'll send you a press pack. And in the press pack came a CD called Upon These, Beyond These Shores, Beyond These Shores. And it was an entire album about St. Brendan of Ireland, one of the great saints of Celtic Christianity. Now, at that moment in time, I was a guitar-playing Episcopalian at a church that was veering hard left. And all kind of, my family was beginning to say, what the heck is going on in our life? There were other people who were on this journey. There was this crazy Episcopal priest in Oak Ridge, Tennessee, named Stephen Freeman, who I had met a couple of years earlier when I spoke at a conference inspired by one of his papers, but it was a conference that his own bishop wouldn't let him speak at, and it's all complicated. And at that conference where I spoke, they assigned a young seminarian to take care of me for three days, drive me around, get me to my appointments on time, and that young seminarian's name was Jim Tilson, who of course is now a member of this parish. Well, Jim and I were in constant touch with each other through all those years, and I got fascinated with the story of St. Brendan of Ireland. There was something about this launching out and not knowing where you're going, you know, and trusting that all the reports that there was something out there beyond these shores, that was all, it was really fascinating to me. And needless to say, as my family made its own journey into orthodoxy, one of the first questions I faced was, who's going to be your patron saint? And I remember distinctly asking the late Father Gordon Walker, are we allowed to pick Western saints as long as they're pre-schism? And he said, yes, by all means, which is how we ended up with a Brigitte in my family and a Hilda in my family. And of course, any small boy wants the guy that killed the dragon, so you're going to get St. George. You know, the, the automatic saint of all small boys. Um, I mean, you want that over your bed, right? I mean, like, um, I began to read about Brendan and read about Brendan, and eventually I began talking to Jim Tilson about this subject, and we were, I was totally fascinated. To make a long story short, when I was chrismated, I took St. Brendan as my patron saint, and so did Jim Tilson which is why, you know, I cut, I'm Brendan 1 and he's Brendan 2 since I'm older than him. And now I have a grandson named Brendan because my daughter married a history major at Gordon College who was obsessed with Brendan of Ireland and the Celtic saints. And he's now Orthodox and teaches Latin and Greek at an Orthodox school in Wichita. Do you get the idea that these things kind of get woven into each other? And what I'm trying to encourage you is by saying your experience of the catechumenate and your experience of some of these early questions like, okay, what's an icon corner? Where does it go? What goes in it? What is my prayer life supposed to look like? 
your answers are not going to be automatically be the same as everybody else's. I mean, you may not need St. Bartholomusolos III of, <laughs> of Leningrad, you know, or whatever. I mean, there, there may be someone who speaks to you out of other parts of the tradition or even out of the West before St. Patrick of Ireland leaps to mind. There's a lot of very interesting saints. Now, I'm wearing a shirt for the St. Brendan Festival, which was held here years ago. Uh, at St. Anne because, and this is to cut ahead to the end of the chapter, what is orthodoxy going to look like in America? What will an emerging orthodox sensibility and spirituality in America, what will that look like? And how will we test it? What will, literally, what will it sound like in terms of music? <coughs> There's a... Uh, interesting piece called Tonus Americanus, which I've heard two different stories for the origin of this hymn to the Blessed Mary. And both of them involve a Greek monk hearing Americans singing Shenandoah and thinking that chord sequence sounds an awful lot like tone four, or, or whichever one it was. And he wrote an orthodox hymn, which if you listen carefully, you can hear We've sung it here a couple of times. Didn't we do it today? No, we didn't. No, no? that's a different one. Okay, it sounds really yeah, similar. Yeah, that's it. it, very similar. Um, that's written by a Slavic yeah. composer yeah. who is really fascinated with the structures of black church hymnody in America and a cappella music. And you can hear a little bit of that in the melody line and then the harmonization. Whenever they do, they do Thomas America, America every week up at the interesting, to say the least, Orthodox parish outside of Johnson City, which I was one of the founders of half of that parish. We had to start a mission in order to join it in Johnson City. It's not easy to come to Orthodoxy in East, well, let's put it this way, it's a lot easier to come to Orthodoxy in East Tennessee now than it was in 1997 or eight. But what's interesting is the Greeks in the parish don't like it. They said it sounds like the Grand Ole Opry. <laughs> to me, it doesn't sound like anything like the ground all operate. It sounds, but you can hear some harmonic sensibilities in this ancient text and the way it's framed in the music that I think is a clue. Whatever we end up doing with orthodoxy in America, it will need to be worthy of orthodoxy. And we will need the guidance of our bishops. We will need the guidance of our priests and other people who know the tradition inside out to figure out what an orthodoxy that fits our culture will look like and sound like. So I don't have any quick answers on that today. But as a musician, it's, it's of tremendous importance to me. Um, I tell people all the time that I can tell you the music that goes with almost every single major event of my life. I see everything in my life through the framework of music the framework of singing. So I am biased in that direction. So uh, big idea number one. Do you have today. a soundtrack for your life? A lot of them. <laughs> I think I have 183 playlists just in my phone. Um, you don't want to know about my iPod. <laughs> uh, a, a friend of mine once calculated that if you put my iPod on, sh yes, an iPod, these things that you <laughs> I'm old enough to have an iPod. <laughs> you, you 
you talk to? No. <laughs> um, a friend of mine once calculated that if you put my iPod on shuffle, where it would play everything once, it would play for four and a half months without repeating a song. Now, that, it helps to have a lot of symphonic music in there. <laughs> um, and about five different settings of Rachmaninoff's Vespers. What do the converts want? Frederica Matthews Green has been intrigued with this question as long as I've known her. And I've known, I knew her and Father Gregory before they became Orthodox. The big word that continues to come up is beauty. And beauty is all through this chapter today. The one where we, a sacrifice of praise. Another image that I thought that was fascinating was her image that you have beauty, but at the same time you have the doctrines of the faith that aren't going to change. And I love that image of fence posts that line up in a row. I mean, was the fence posts are different. They come from different cultures. They come from different times. But they're, when you look at them, you don't see like, like something way over here. You see this like right in a row. If we ever return to full communion with the Orthodox churches of the further east, eastern world, Coptics in particular, Antioch and Coptics are now very close in their talks together for reestablishing communion. I love the point she makes that in, if and when that agreement is ever reached, they will already have all the sensibility of worship, they'll have the same early saints, they'll have the same traditions. One fence post will just get lined up again between the churches and we will be in communion. <clears throat> this the big word that comes up in this chapter of course is tradition and I love the fact that very early on how many of you have already heard that there are big T traditions and little T traditions and this has nothing to do with Tennessee football <laughs> running through you've heard this she says it in the chapter what she actually says that in the chapter yeah. she mentions well what does she mean when she says that She's making a distinction between doctrine and some of the practical applications that have to do with, like, say, things you're creating in your own home. And things you're creating, maybe parish to parish will have things slightly different. Oh, I meant to show you this earlier. Pass this around. This last weekend, I was at Holy Cross Orthodox Church in Linthicum, where my wife and I were members for 12 years. And they have this beautiful icon that when you walk in, on the wall above the above the sandbox where you put your candles as you come in and say your prayers and these are the saints of North America now if you look really careful I've got a blow up where you can see it you see this little guy up here in a boat <laughs> and it's like I'm not official the Orthodox totally don't want me for sure but I got here first <laughs> you know I came in the sixth century and the first divine liturgies were on American shores were by Celtic monks. And there's St. Brendan in his boat headed to North America up there, up there on the corner. <laughs> so I'll pass that around so you can see it. I meant to hand those out earlier. Well, obviously there aren't a lot of other Orthodox churches in America with a St. Brendan. But... This church, when it did the interior iconography, and of course, we hope to build a church in the next couple of years, we're gonna have lots of questions about iconography and lots of other things. I love the fact that they went ahead and claimed the pre-schism missionaries, aesthetics. St. Brigid has a large 
you know, image on the wall. They used the the Saint Joseph, the betrothed icon, the husband of Mary. They used an image of Saint Joseph based on an icon that I brought brought back from Thessaloniki, which is Saint Joseph holding the Christ child. The only canonical icon of anyone holding the Christ child other than Mary. And whereas in those icons, the Christ child is always looking face to face with Mary. And Mary is pointing at the Christ child, saying, not me, him. That you see that pattern over and over in those icons. In the icon with Joseph, he's, Joseph is holding Christ. Christ is facing out and blessing whoever is coming to look at the icon. We have a very interesting distinction there. And once again, so what, what kind of theology is that? I would say that's right where small T tradition in some forms of art and iconography meet large T tradition. And what we're being taught about the incarnation, what we're being taught about Mary, what we're being taught about the unique life and service of Joseph. When I became a grandfather, Joseph just kind of showed up in my life. I don't know how to describe it except that. And I think you need to be sensitive to when you you get an interest in certain saints, follow those interests. When you're sitting at lunch and people are talking about your saints and you ask them, how, how did you pick a patron saint? Listen to the stories people tell. It may not be a CD showing up in the mail. It may, or it, but it may be just seeing an icon or, or hearing a story or like I've always wanted to know more about Joseph I mean, a monk what's told my son Fry that they were at a monastery for a youth camp and they, once some young boy asked one of the monks who do you think is the most interesting person in the New Testament not necessarily the most important that would be Mary or Peter or whatever who do you think? and he said I've always been interested in St. Joseph and my son Fry asked why and the, man, and the monk said, because God trusted him to protect the Theotokos and the Christ child at the most fragile and vulnerable time in their lives. We don't know much about him, but he must have really been somebody stable. And that we can hope and pray that we will have Joseph's in our life or with the vows we take as parents and everything else, we will be called to be Joseph to help protect children, godchildren, and others at different points in their lives. What do the converts want? Beauty. Bringing this home. How many of you have, have hung an icon at this point? Anybody? Dylan? You've heard about trying to get it as best you can. You have to get out your Apple phone and get to get tell which way is due east or something like that. But we kind of orient our homes around trying to find an eastern wall, you know, and putting some icons up. I think that's really it's one of the most important things you can do is start claiming this part of the tradition for yourself. Well, how do I know which icons go up? Well, that's a good topic to discuss with Father Daniel, you know, and, and others. You're probably going to start with an icon of Christ, Christ Pentecrator. You know, the great icon of Sinai is a great place to begin as far as I'm concerned. The sweet kissing icon of Mary and the child from Russia, Rublev. 
there's different things that are basics, but I'm not answering that question for you. I'm telling you it's an important question for you to ask. Okay, parents here. Any parents? How many food questions have already come up? <laughs> like, what do I give the ch what are the children going to be willing to eat? Is something you will face really quickly. My wife has a pie recipe that as far as this parish and the parish where we were before might as well be small tea tradition verging on large tea tradition. They say you know you're orthodox when you can have two hour arguments about which forms of tofu are better than others. Um, but my wife makes a pie out of tofu, non-Lenten whipped cr uh, creamy substitute, and dark chocolate because there's no milk in it. And it's a Lenten pie that children will eat. And you combine it with a, I know this from experience, you combine it with a spoonful of peanut butter and you could pretty much get a kid to the next meal, <laughs> you know, with a good slice. That was, for her, discovering that pie was just kind of like a funny thing, but a woman in the parish handed it on to her. Deborah has handed it on to others. She has handed it on now to dozens of people here. I'm still waiting for the first non-Debra tofu pie to show up during the Lenten season. Why am I telling you this silly illustration? This is exactly what Frederica is talking about with small tea traditions within a culture, within a parish, within families, and whatever. I was telling my daughter yesterday, she and her husband and five kids live in Wichita, Kansas, that for me, early on, I thought of the liturgical calendar in terms of what would go in your burrito. <laughs> now stop and think about it for a second. How many of you have got through meals with your children by saying, I'll get out the tortillas and you can kind of put whatever you want in it. I don't want beans. You don't have to eat beans tonight. Tonight you'll have, you know, right? Okay. In the strictest of fasting seasons, apple butter, granola, apple slices, cinnamon, roll it up in a burrito, nuke it. Well, you, your burrito can be different in other seasons, right? You can have the full-on burrito in some other seasons. You can have more of that burrito than you could before. But think of your meals and your cooking as you're going to take what the church is asking you to strive to do. This is not legalism. And you're going to fit it into what you discover will work for your family and for you, and you're trying to live this out. You're conscious of it. It's like, again, I'm stressing, it's not legalism. But it is a way, she keeps calling it the path, the path, the path. And there are big T traditions on the path. Confession, the sacraments, the liturgical calendar, the seasons. And then there are small T traditions. How does my family make that work? While talking to my spiritual father, how do I walk through this? What does it look like for us in our circumstances? Another incident from my own life. I lived in Washington, D.C. for a decade. 
And every morning I rolled into, I rolled into Washington, D.C. on the train from Baltimore. And I would walk one mile, brick sidewalks, horrible things, to my office at 8th and Maryland in D.C. Day after day after day. One day I was particularly troubled. It was a rainy day and walking a mile in the rain with an umbrella, you know, the wind's blowing and all this. And I'm walking up the D Street, right by the Supreme Court office building. And a young man is walking toward me. He's dressed in a suit. I assume he is an intern. He's dressed in a suit and he's drenched wet. He does not have an umbrella. And he's walking toward Capitol Hill and he's crying. I have no idea what was going on in his life at that moment. But I was moved to pray for him. And that started a litany that over the years I was in Washington kept developing and developing and developing. And it would start when I walked off the train and it would end when I hit the front door of my office. And it changed how I viewed Washington, D.C. and how I viewed what was going on around me. I don't know of any guide to prayer that says something like that is either possible or admirable or whatever. All I know is it changed how I viewed the city that I worked in and the people around me and it changed something that before my life had been a moment of drudgery and it changed it into something that actually helped move me forward in my prayer life. Now I don't know what will happen for you. But one of the things you want is to find the times and the places and the means of prayer amid the screaming children and all the other things that are going on. You're going to be striving to find what works in your life. Small T traditions that will bring you closer to some of the big T's of the tradition. That final question, American Orthodoxy. I used to worry about this a lot. And the reason is that I teach mass media and culture. It's one of the things I do. And I kept, when I converted to orthodoxy, I was teaching my block. Where's page two? There's the next page. I used to have students saying, well, have you changed your view of American life? Have you changed your view of American culture? Do you believe we're all wrong now? Or is all American culture bad? These things kept coming up because it was a big part of my life and my teaching. I struggled with this. This was the issue for me during the year when I was sitting right where you are sitting, trying to decide whether I was going to take the plunge eventually and become Orthodox. Did Orthodoxy hate America? I have literally have had Greeks tell me, yeah. I've had Russians tell me, oh yeah, you bet. There is nothing in America worthy of orthodoxy. The only problem with that is that that's heresy. It's somehow assuming that God is not the God of all creation. All of it both glorious and fallen. It's like saying God's hands are tied here. Now, will what happens in America... 
look somewhat American, sound somewhat American, like Tonus Americanus, or but will it still be truly Orthodox? Folks, this morning, Father warned you about the Internet and the orthobros, they're called. <laughs> Do you all know the definition of an orthobro? Have you heard this term? An orthobro is someone who's been orthodox for six months. They've already read like five shelves of the church fathers, and they now know orthodoxy completely. And they live to argue about the fine points of orthodoxy. And they all have websites. And most of them and YouTube have channels what? and podcasts. And most of them have podcasts and YouTube channels. Folks, as you heard this morning, God has given us shepherds to help in this process. I was in the Antiochian Orthodox Church before we joined this church, which is in the OCA. There was a remarkable, unusual man named Metropolitan Philip who came to America, and he was the guy that made the decision with the Patriarch of Antioch to accept the Evangelical Orthodox, a group of about 6,000 converts with their own priests and everything else, including my late spiritual father, Father Gordon Walker, who started the great St. Ignatius Church outside of Franklin, Franklin, Tennessee. And all of these people were involved in the Orthodox Study Bible that I hope you've seen, and if you haven't, you should. This was a huge issue for them. Father Gordon Walker pointed me to something that Metropolitan Philip had done earlier, and I want you to use it just as a way of thinking about this crazy quilt of orthodoxy that we have in America right now. Metropolitan Philip immediately faced the question, what will we let all these converts sing? They've already created all their own music, and they all want to keep it. And frankly, none of it, or very little of it, met the standards of orthodox hymnody. So what could he do that would help them, yet would be orthodox? Well, working with the remarkable and beloved bishop of Wichita, Kansas, Bishop Basil, they created something they just called the, the orthodox, the, the uh, what was the name of it? Uh, the Tone Project, I, I forget, there's the name, and I'm having a senior moment, it's, I'm blanking. Basically, what they did is they looked at all of the music of the different Orthodox traditions around the world. And they looked at it and they said what they felt was worthy, what they felt was practical, and they created a great digital database of liturgical music. Byzantine project, Byzantine project. And they basically said, you can sing anything that's in here. Tonus Americanus is now in the Byzantine project. Several other things that have developed, included by OCA composers and others, have been found to be worthy and are now being included. But they said, Americans don't sing like people in Syria. Trust me on this. <laughs> Doesn't sound anything at all alike. And then there are enough schools of Russian music to make your head spin. Carpathian Russians need more melodies. Others need simpler melodies. And we can go on and on about it. But this shepherd said, this is a huge issue. Americans want to sing. What are we going to let them sing? And he put his, one of his most talented bishops on the issue of liturgy, also a man with a real pastoral heart, 
and he set up a standard, a flexible standard, but an orthodox standard, a flexible standard to try to meet the needs of Americans, because Americans didn't already have a culture, didn't know all of this music, needed some guidance. This is where we're going. The path runs obviously through the parish, but the path will very soon need to run through your home. And all of these questions of little t tradition, I don't want you to think that any of them are not worthy of bringing up around the lunch table, in your meetings with you know, Father Greeson, Father Stephen, just as you go through this process. There are no questions that are too small to be related to the practice of orthodoxy in your home. When it begins to reach there, you will begin to start seeing this looks like the life that I will be living. In conclusion, I do a, a lot of public speaking and traveling to public, but believe it or not, maybe this is a good thing, I've hardly ever been asked to speak in an Orthodox setting. That may change soon, depending on what happens with a project at St. Vladimir Seminary. But a number of years ago, in 2006, I was invited to speak to a conference of Orthodox laity in Baltimore. Summoned. And they, they, you know, I said, what do you want me to speak on? And they gave all these, frankly, highfalutin topics that as a layman who had just entered the church at that point, like seven years earlier, I didn't feel I was up to. And I finally said, would you allow me to speak on the topic, what do the converts want? And they said, okay, we'll take that. And I did a speech which turned in later to a, a paper published the Antiochian Archdiocese, and that's online. If you'd like to read it, I can get you a URL, and we could put it up on the listserv or something. But I want to read to you the end of that talk. And the main thing I said was that the cradle Orthodox need to understand that the Orthodoxy have come to the church wanting something. They're not, converts are not all alike. They've had different experiences. Some of them are kind of, like frankly me, having to kind of get in, they're having to get over the church they were in or escape a certain part of their own background or whatever. At some point, they will move from orthodoxy being what I believe now instead of me wrestling with what I have believed or established. I was in a convert catechism class that was almost all Calvinists. I know the Calvinist struggle inside. I'm predestined to know the Calvinist <laughs> struggle inside out, even though that was not my struggle. You'll have your own. But let me read the end of this, this piece. I have a friend who wants to be Orthodox. More than anything, he has for a number of years been visiting a nearby Orthodox church. This was in West Palm Beach, Florida. There's a problem. 
you see that this friend also has business that takes him to Chicago where he when he's there he worships at All Saint Orthodox Church a vital convert friendly parish he sees the Orthodox life there and he wants it like life itself the problem is he can't find it where he lives for five years he's been struggling one year at Pascha he witnessed this painful sad scene this service of course is the high point of the Christian year yet at the high point of the high point service as a small choir entered the sanctuary singing Christ has risen from the dead trampling down death by death the members of the congregation stood in silence watching congregational singing had been lost as a tradition in this parish my friend saw this and trust me this was not what he was looking for he wanted orthodoxy for himself and his young family he wanted more not less he still does if there is to be unity of orthodoxy in America that unity will emerge out of the sacram sacramental life of the church we will sing it into existence we will pray it into existence we will confess it into existence it can happen no other way we must live the faith and then give it away now you're at the start of this process I want to end today just with a simple question that runs that looms over this whole chapter what is it you're looking for what is it that you want what is it that you're trying to find you have already taken the first step which is come and see you're trying to get to the step oh taste and see are there questions about the chapter and anything else I can help you with out of it I didn't read a bunch of stuff from the chapter because you've already read it this, this is just how I choose to teach I thought I saw a hand move I thought there for a second we had a brave question <laughs> any questions comments about the chapter do I need to give a pop quiz <laughs> I just have one comment about the actual schism that occurred with the um, is it the oriental the, uh, yes and it was the Chalcedian um, difference and I wonder sometimes if these things are just language because I mean when, when you know nope. that as an English speaker I'm going how is this different and what was the split over it, that's what the Antiochian authorities have concluded mm -hmm that the Coptic language didn't have a word that was a direct parallel to the Greek. And after literally a millennium of bashing heads over this thing, they've decided that it's basically a function of mistranslation because they don't see a low Christology. They don't see an improper view of Christ as God and man. They don't see that in the life of the Coptic church. But the words that got translated out of the Coptic makes it sound like that might be it. I mean, that problem might be there. But I think they've concluded that it was a translation problem. Yeah, Dylan. Does they believe in a, is it myophytism? Neophytism? Monophysitism. Yeah. Take it, Dale. Monophysite. You, you can probably answer better. It's, it's the homoousis, uh, the 
the, uh, the, 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 the nature the nature of Christ the, the, the is, is being of the same essence with uh, with with uh, the father and what they've what these dialogues have come down to is that the Coptic ancient Coptic language doesn't have a word that expresses that unity of God and man the same way as the Greek. So they may like change their theology. So they've concluded that what they see is a church that's living the proper theology. It, it shows up in all their hymnody and, and in everything else. But in when they express it in the Coptic language in their tradition, the word doesn't line up directly with the Greek. And they've reached the point to where if an Antiochian Christian is in a city where there's no other Orthodox option, so there's a Coptic option, they can ask their bishop for permission to take communion in the Coptic Church, and vice versa. And the bishops on both sides have said, with the approval of a bishop and spiritual father, you're free to join a Coptic Church. That's how close they are to reestablishing communion. And we can all pray that that's something that happens in our life. Because if you want a church with a noble tradition of service, martyrdom, and sacrifice. Look no further than the Copts of Egypt. Um, an incredible book. If you, I wrote a column about it. I could get you, get you a link for that as well. A book called The 21. And it's the story of the Coptic Christians who were martyred on the beach in Libya, what, five years ago now, something like that? Um, and I, I didn't, until I read the book, I didn't know and I had a chance to interview the author. I didn't know that over half of those people were subdeacons. Over half those men were subdeacons. And several of them were preliterate, they didn't, but they had memorized the entire three hour of the Coptic Divine Liturgy. Um, and knew all the rites by heart, even though they were, they were not literate. Um, they, they've been able to trace the records of their visits to monasteries and other things. So, uh, quite a story. So, I... Um, I, that's a major thing. Now, there are other forms of Eastern Orthodoxy, Eastern Eastern Orthodoxy, Chalcedonians, is that the right word? There are others who are further away than the Copts. The Copts are like right there, and I think we will see communion with the Coptic Church within many of our lives. Yes, what do you think about the uh, Ethiopian Church? They're Coptic. They're Coptic, oh. basically. Yeah. I thought they were uh, different. Like they got. There are some. There are some things in there that will need to be discussed, and that's another language. You know, I mean, so you, but you were right to focus on the issue of translation. Um, I'm not. I don't want to get political here or something, but a controversial figure in the Greek Orthodox Church who has done some exploring, shall we say, on liberalizing teachings on sexuality or whatever. The other day he said the key to orthodoxy in America is more Greek language classes. Uh, I don't think that's going to help us a whole lot in the current context that we're in. Other, other questions and comments? How, so what, I'd like to send you away thinking of two things. We'll do the burrito thing some other time. In fact, one of the things we hope to do is have at least one or two cooking events a year. Now, when we get close to a fasting season where people can trade cards and trade recipe cards and other things with a special emphasis on trying to get kids to eat things. 
Of course, you don't make children fast as severely. In my own family, we never had the children fast from dairy until they hit like 16 or 18. And then they made that choice with their own with with our priest. Um, you tweak these things. But I want you to start thinking about an icon corner. And I want you to start thinking just and asking other people in the congregation for examples of places where you can read about some of the lives of the saints and begin thinking of who, who speaks to you. Who are the saints that somehow inspire you? Okay, thank you all very much. Yes. Somebody was listening to the podcast, or not the the talk that I gave about the the churches and the pictures of the churches, and I figured out a way to email in five different emails to email out those pictures. So if you weren't here and want to get those, just contact. Another interesting cultural thing is when we build a church. What, what will the church look like? That's another really interesting question. I wrote a column about that a couple of years ago, interviewing the architect Andrew Gould, and how he works with churches in different cultural... I mean, obviously, an Orthodox church in Santa Fe, New Mexico, isn't going to look like one in Amish country, and probably isn't going to look exactly like one in the hills of Tennessee. Um, and it's back to that culture thing. It's back to what does orthodoxy look like in a new setting? And folks, that's exactly what we're hoping to do with each of you in your own lives. Figure that equation out. Okay. Yes, sir. The prayer? Yes. Where is the, are the classes online yet? Um, ask Father Daniel. He's got them up, I believe, online. because yeah. they are. I looked. I up, saw spring for 2022, but I didn't see any fall. I looked up a Saint Anne Catechism class on uh, Apple Podcasts, and I found it. Podcasts. Yeah. Okay. Mr. Neal, will you leave us in prayer? Oh Lord, let us all that serve in a prayer in peace. For the Nazi seen that salvation, which thou hast with the old people, the life and let the Gentiles be the glory of the people of Israel. Through the prayers of holy fathers, the Lord Jesus Christ, our God, have mercy upon us and save us. Amen. Amen. Amen.